Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we're offering three conversations from episode 58, the beginning of our year-end wrap-up with Jorn, Louise, and me, plus from our vault, two conversations from season three, episode 20, Jorn's first episode as co-host. This conversation starts with me asking Jorn Schottenberg what has come up in the past several months with the various consortia, and particularly the retrospective analysis of Nail on IT. Jorn comments first that non-invasive testing may have more energy behind it right now than any one other area in liver research. He notes the increasing number of consortia and their roles in the NIT issue. One impact of all of this has been to change the original focus, which was how NITs can replace biopsies and be tested accordingly. To a focus on NITs can be validated via reductions in ALT, MRI, PDFF, and MRE metrics. In terms of particularly important data, Jorn goes back a year to a study from the NASH CRN that measured severity in terms of baseline histology and then produced ratios of decompensation at different fibrosis stages. From there, he points out that data from the single sponsor studies such as the Rosmeteron Maestro data, produces faster results than larger consortium studies because the data is more tightly organized. He goes on to point out that the NAIL NIT retrospective data analysis is designed to work around that issue with multiple sponsors' data. Louise asks whether or how we can measure the impact of patient behavior change on outcomes in the single sponsor studies. Jorn notes that researchers can include questionnaires and app-based assessments to assess some of these factors, but that we'll probably miss some of it as well. As for other highlights of the year, Jorn discusses basic science. I presage the year-long return of rising tide in 2023 as proof that frontline treaters are focusing increasingly on treating diabetic patients. And the closing question looks at what we see as changing at pathways of care development over the next year. Not surprisingly, the answers the three of us give very significantly. Along with in-person meetings, your joining the podcast was our single biggest change this year. It was fascinating to me to compare where Nashville was when he joined back in April to what we all are thinking just seven months later. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. When you're done, join the conversations in our LinkedIn discussion group. One of the things we talked about earlier in the year was we had a couple of sections on a nail on IT and on a specific one with you on retrospective analysis. And I'm kind of wondering, we've not talked about it in several months. What's been going on with that in the last several months? Jörn Schattenberg. Yeah, if, if you take drug development aside, I, clearly the non-invasive testing NITs are the area that is the hottest because we are urgently needing to move away from liver biopsy to define this disease. And there are so many aspects of this. You know, what is a baseline test? If Louise assesses a cap today. What does that mean for the patient in 10 years? Does it have a meaning? Is there anything meaningful outcome linked to it? And that prospective data is being generated in a number of consortia. Not all have the same setup. We've discussed some of them. Some of the consortial leaders were on here representing Litmus, Quentin Anstey, representing Nimble, Arun Sanyal. And all of them have a little bit of different twists. So if I can speak to Litmus because I'm part of the consortium, it really aimed at validating a biomarker to replace liver biopsy as an outcome in clinical trials. Well, that's a long shot. We've clearly made such a big improvement in understanding, mostly from retrospective data up until now, but emergingly also prospective data, what how a biomarker is linked to histology and how a change in biomarker is linked to a change in histology. Many of the data we discussed here, it's the 17 units of ALT drop uh, that was defined from a retrospective analysis of 
of a phase two trial. It's the changes in MRE, the changes in MRI, PDFF, 30 and 50% threshold. So all that data that's been generated is now prospectively also evaluated in the in the consortia that I mentioned. And NAIL NIT is thought to sit in a gap of some of the existing consortia to specifically look at outcomes. So what is the biomarker at baseline to predict a specific outcome? And I think that's where all of the consortia have some additional value. And considering that outcomes based on a liver condition at baseline takes quite some time because liver disease are slowly progressive. There are confounders and there are interventions as such will need quite some more time to answer that prospectively. And for that, I'm very happy to, to be part of these consortia and develop this urgently needed data in a prospective design. Is there anything of note? Well, there have been several things that have come out this year, right? Is there any finding that's come out this year of any of the consortia that you think was particularly earth-shattering, groundbreaking, enlightening? Pick the term of your choice. Well, I think the strongest pace was even last year was the prospective data from the NASH CRN reporting on four and a half years uh, median follow-up in patients with baseline histology that's published in the New England Journal. And that's not even on biomarkers. It just links again, the baseline severity defined on liver histology to the event rates, heathered ratios of decompensation in different fibrosis stages. So I think this is still a paper that's heavily discussed and uh, important for the field. It defines the number of events you can expect in what time frame in a prospective cohort. Beyond that, a lot of imaging data comes out of the clinical trials that are being reported, even interim analysis or the open label arm of the Maestro-NAFLD study. Uh, and Stephen Harrison presented some of that cirrhosis arm at ASLD. So because of the nature of a controlled prospective trial that's run through a sponsor, and normally those data are more rapidly available compared to the big consortia. And, and I think that data from a number of trials was also very informative. And actually, it's the goal of the retrospective part of NAIL and IT to collect that across sponsors, taking the Madrigal open label data, taking some phase two data, considering their different inclusions and exclusions, but looking at histology that they use to enroll it and then look at the change of biomarkers. So the strength of NAIL and IT here is to really combine these different sponsors and look across MOAs at certain changes in biomarkers. Louise Campbell. Can I ask you a question on that? On the retrospective studies, you can't assess for the impact of healthcare on changing people's behavior with education. And we've discussed it in the episode. How are you looking at that prospectively? Because the minute you get the education, we hope to change the patient's behavior. That big change we know can affect progression of disease. So when we measure outcomes, what is the measurement there that says, I changed my behavior? Is there a linear scale that people are being asked to assess that actually I've eaten better? I've slowed down the progression of my disease that way? Because it's very difficult to assess an outcome the minute you put in any form of education and for liver disease, metabolic changes, that's absolutely probably one of the most fundamental areas. And I just wondered how that was being assessed prospectively in that population. That's a very good comment, Louise. And just being in a trial or being in contact with a physician obviously changes things, the trajectory, the severity, or potentially the behavior. Most people, I think, would benefit from that type of interaction. In retrospective data, you don't have any idea on that. In the prospective data protocols, you can design the protocol accordingly and say, well, I think it's important what you eat. So we're going to introduce an instrument to assess the type of diet, for example. And then we're going to define that we'll use that as a cofactor in disease development, looking at the amount of Mediterranean diet you adhere to or calories, or even using an app and calculating this, looking at weight trajectories in a, in a defined way. So it's easier to do that prospectively. Now, it's even in that context, it's difficult because there are so many confounders. I agree with you. Uh, you will not and uh, never ever be able to capture all the drinks a person might have had over a year in a rigorous 
scientific matter. So that will always be the assessment of no drinking, mild, moderate, severe drinking. I think the complexity of that information in a slowly progressive disease is just very high. But there are some answers to that. So questionnaires around lifestyle, app-based assessment of lifestyle, and even activity measures could be introduced to assess some of these confounders or, let's say, um, factors that influence the outcome. So interesting. I'm wondering, since one of the confounders here is that not everybody tells physicians or researchers the truth about how much they drink or how much they exercise, did I say that moderately enough? I'm wondering if there's work being done, although I've not seen it, I should go looking for it. Actually, it's more in my neighborhood to do a better job of scoping out who is and isn't telling the truth. Or can we assess the accuracy of a respondent based on any measures that we know about or any patterns that we know about? I've not really looked for that yet, but you folks might know of it. If not, I will go looking for it. There's a good says if the patient says it's so, it's so. If you're in pain, you're in pain. You go with what the patient says. What a beauty of Fibroscan is you now get away from the yes doctor, no doctor, I've changed my diet doctor. Your Fibroscan hasn't changed. Oh, well, maybe it hasn't changed as much as you think. It's like uh, you use uh, lie detecting technology, don't you? And it is absolutely hysterical because you'll see somebody who's told a physician one thing and then come in for their fibre scan and then they'll fess up. But I think what's also interesting when we look at longitudinal studies prospectively is certainly what I'm seeing here is everybody fattens up for winter because they comfort eat and then they get a bit fitter. Now, the average temperature drop is only to 10 degrees or 14 degrees in Perth on average, maybe eight. It's a different type of cool that tends to cause problems. But yes, it is the lie detector for hepatology. Or certainly, let's see what the crystal ball tells me today, Mr. Jones Smith or Mrs. X, but um, it is very, very funny. So the next brand product should be FibroScan Truth? Is that where you're going here? That, an ECG and a FibroScan, and you'd find most little white lies, shall we say. We all have sneaky treats. Just make them weekends. That's what they're for. Some people's weekends <laughs> last exactly uh, six days. That is the problem, right? Clearly, for me, the highlights were always the basic science discussions on the pathophysiology of the disease, because we can learn so much. And uh, I think we had one session with Neil Henderson and uh, Scott Friedman here discussing some novel technologies and approaches. And uh, I really enjoy. I think I said that before. I, for me, these are always great sessions and it teaches us why it's so difficult to treat chronic fibrosing liver disease because there's a lot of interactions. Some of the molecular pathways we have not fully understood. We can modulate others. In the clinic, we always just look at the compound or the composite endpoint of scar buildup and fibrosis regression. But there's so many cells and pathways involved that it's very interesting to, to understand them in detail. I, I, I couldn't agree more. The reason I've had this conversation, I listen to Scott with my mouth agape. But his ability to make these things clear is really fantastic. Bringing Rachel Zayas to the party a little bit this year has helped. Also, she certainly isn't at Scott's level of scientist, but, you know, it's part of her work is to take the things that she works on and express them that clearly. So I think that's been helpful also. I guess my story as we get to the end of the year is that we expect we will be coming back with rising tide in 2023, which is exciting for us. I think what it bespeaks is the beginning of a transition to understand that, that we are ready to start educating frontline treaters a lot more aggressively about what's happening. I mean, the presence of the guidelines has been huge and having the professional society start to push those things. But one of the things we learned in our pilot for Rising Tide is that the most effective advertising that we could run was a simple statement that says, if you treat one type 2 diabetes patient a day, you need to learn more about fatty liver disease. And people were able to look at that statement and go, gee, I have something to learn here. And I don't believe that would have been the case a year earlier. So anyway, Rising Tide will be back. It'll be a 12-month program next year. We will have a year-long sponsor for it. And then we will have the opportunity for other companies to sponsor individual episodes within the program. If you're a listener and you've ever sponsored anything with Surfing Nash, 
I'll be reaching out to you shortly on this. If you've never and you want to know, call me and or reach out to the questions at surfingnash.com. I'll come back to you. We can talk about it. That'll be exciting because it'll be an expansion of this franchise to go into more different kinds of dialogues for different kinds of people who need them. We have one or two other proposals out to do the same thing in other places. That I'm excited about. And I think you're on the right track with it, Roger. There's so many more things to discuss in different settings. So clearly, uh, congratulations to you and the team for, you know, driving this through multiple channels and formats. It all starts on this podcast, which means it starts with the two of you as much as anybody else. So thank you for that. We're getting to the top of the hour. We started a little bit late, but that's okay. We can end now because we know that Louise, for example, has to be awake all day and then catch a flight at seven o'clock tonight. So in closing, every time I ask, what do you expect to see different in 12 months? Everybody says drugs, you know, resmeterone, perhaps acid. If we look at it from the perspective of pathways and how care is delivered, which, you know, like is, is the Barcelona meeting and Louise is a lot of the stuff you work on and a lot of stuff that fascinates me. What do we think might change in the next year on any of that? I think we just started to initiate the dialogue with different care providers. You know, one of my highlights that I didn't mention was, of course, my first visit to the European Association for the Study of the Diabetes in Stockholm. The openness, the providers there accepted that liver disease is part of their disease spectrum in patients are treating with type 2 diabetes. There will be an expansion of this concept, and it, it always takes some time to be adapted in the field, in particular for patients that are treating patients, not so much involved in academia or research or scientific environments, you know, just for it to come to the ground root care providers that, hey, um, I got to tick the box for liver disease because this patient is obese and type 2 diabetes, and he has a high pre-tested probability for advanced liver disease. Continuing that interaction and the discussion with different care takers of, of patients will be one of the major changes. And I, I do see we're, we're at the beginning and we're making uh, grounds here. Yeah, and no, I agree with Jean, and I was thinking the same thing. We're like a little sapling putting down roots into endocrinology and cardiology. But liver disease, if you look at it, or liver health assessment can help all of those help patients. And I do believe that over the last 12 months to 18 months, we've seen all of us come to connect together from Jean and Jeff's work with the path ways with Donors and GLI and the other liver foundations, we are coming together as united force to say that we can help improve the care of those with diabetes at primary care level. They don't need to get liver damage or cardiology. And I do sense a greater patient in the middle of that pathway rather than being just somebody who comes through and a physician or a nurse sees them on that pathway. They are the centre to that pathway. And I think we are getting there. We're a long way from it. If you look at the Fatty Liver Disease Foundation stuff and 80% still need more, but getting it into the conversation. So we are there to help our colleagues, but we don't want to see too much liver disease. Primary care is the best and the most appropriate place to be locating, treating and strengthening those responds with your patients from all walks. But if it goes with diet, it goes with the liver. Just rule it out. Don't rule it in. Look, I think when you talk about liver health, that's clearly the case, right? If you didn't change the numbers, but did a better job of picking up people once they were at say F2 fibrosis, we don't have enough hepatologists to treat that. We need five, 10 times more hepatologists than we have right now to make a dent in, in that level of disease. So if we don't pick it up early, we're just going to have a bunch of excess mortality. Not to be harsh about it, but I think that's what it comes down to. More more people than need to are going to die if we, if we don't pick 
it up until folks get sick. We're much better today to define which patients should be passed on to hepatology. And I think that the NITs and what the work around the pathways is, is promoting that. Yeah, and I think actually I agree. And I think the discussion around the strengths and weaknesses of FIB4 gets at a lot of that, right? Which is, you know, FIB4 is okay. FIB4 is better than nothing. FIB4 is not where we ultimately want to wind up. I kind of like the nuances in that conversation that people have accepted the idea that it's a start for right now, but not a start forever. As I've, one of the things I've talked about with every time we've had a patient advocate on this year, except from the States, is that everywhere else in the world, people should be pushing to get the FIB4 measures into basic comprehensive blood panel the way it is in the States. Because, you know, right now, I don't understand all the details, but LabCorp in the States can run a FIB4 off your comprehensive panel and then reflex you an ELF test if you need one, if it's indicated to be appropriate to do that, which gets us way down the curve very, very fast with patients. And we can do that in primary care off of basic blood work. If we can get to the place where other leading countries in the world can integrate those tests into what they're doing, I think it would be usually helpful. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with the next piece of our year-end review, this time including interviews with Scott Friedman and Donna Cryer, among others. You'll want to hear it. Until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.